Falcha, welcome to the Mir podcast. I'm Peter Dines, the director at Mir. I'm going to be hosting this podcast hopefully on a monthly basis. I'm joined by Dr. Yei Tao, who will be joining us and will be our educator on this journey. Dr. Tao received a doctorate at the Department of Chemistry at MIT in 2015. He also completed the research requirements for a doctorate in physics at Zurich. This was before running a lab at Harvard's Roland Institute. But the more that Dr. Tao learned about global warming, the more he knew he had to refocus on that particular issue. To do that, he set up MIR, which is Mirrors for Earth's Energy Rebalancing. MIR is a non-profit organization focusing on surface SRM adaptation and mitigation research, and also climate education, which this podcast is obviously part of. We'll be discussing everything to do with climate reality, to feasible mitigation, to adaptation, the latest scientific papers, and obviously what's going on with the MIR project on an ongoing basis. If you do have any suggested topics you wish us to cover in the future, you can tweet us at MIRSRM on X, that's M-E-E-R-S-R-M on X, or alternatively contact us through the website at MIR.org. Like I said, the organization is a non-profit and we are funded currently by individuals, so any donations are always welcome to further our research and our humanitarian efforts. You can go to mirror.org forward slash donate. Okay, so this is the first podcast, so we're going to mainly focus on just getting to know uh, Ye Tao, the person, and uh, also look at some very basic scientific concepts. Uh, so we're not going to really dig into um, lots of the project or geoengineering at this stage. Um, we will be covering those, con- those, those topics in upcoming uh, podcasts. So yeah, you're 3,000 miles away from, from me. I'm in Belfast, you're in Freetown. So uh, let's hope that the line holds up and there's no blackouts, but you're comfortable there, yeah? Uh, yeah, fair enough. I <laughs> okay. chose a stable location at a cafe, so please uh, okay. excuse the background noise. All right, okay, great. Well, listen, I just want to start off by um, the first thing we want to really know is a bit more about your own background. Um, so like where you grew up and um, how you you were in, you were living in Canada and the US, I think, and studied maybe in Canada. And um, what got you interested in science in the first place? And, and why did you become a scientist? Well, I was uh, born in southwest China, where I spent my uh, childhood and up until like almost the end of elementary school, then uh, I moved with my family to uh, uh, upstate New York in uh, the Syracuse area. That's where I first uh, learned English. And for about a year and a half, I was uh, uh, on the school school band and on the track team and really liked the, uh, the education system there. Then we moved to Montreal, Canada, where uh, I uh, did a like double major throughout high school in music and the regular courses. And after that... Uh, went to Harvard for a biochemistry degree. But what really got me interested in science was my uh, time in Montreal. Um, I just stumbled a, uh, upon a college physics textbook during one of uh, the New Year parties at a friend's place where uh, uh, one of the kids uh, in that household was uh, doing his undergrads in physics. So I got hooked by uh, the first volume of three, I think, and that was on mechanics. and. Uh, that's how my interest in, in science got started. And then throughout uh, the rest of high school um, in Quebec, we had a very good science education because uh, it's uh, structured differently compared to the rest of the world and rest of North America. After the equivalent, equivalent of 11th grade, you have a two-year junior college 
where uh, essentially freshman and sophomore college courses are taught. So uh, I had excellent chemistry and physics teachers who pushed us a lot. And it's during that time that uh, I had a really solid foundation in, in chemistry and physics. And that's uh, really what prepared for my future scientific career in, in college. And how did you end up in, you know, interested in nanotechnology? So, okay, then the, the journey uh, after high school, uh, I basically uh, participated in the Chemistry Olympiad and won a gold medal for, for Canada at the end of my high school. Uh, and uh, after getting into college, um, I focused on developing uh, the practical aspects of uh, myself as an experimentalist. Uh, so I spent uh, like most of my free time from class uh, in the lab, uh, in a physical organic chemistry lab, trying to understand the, the mechanism of the uh, super, well, like organic, large organic molecule catalyzed reactions. And uh, it's uh, like detective work. You're trying to... Um, through like indirect measurements, try to figure out the sequence of events that happen when different molecules uh, meet in specific con configurations and undergo a specific sequence of events in order for uh, the atoms to be rearranged. So <clears throat> it became quite clear to me that uh, existing technology uh, for analyzing these chemical reactions and uh, many other type of science uh, remain to be further developed. So that's how I realized after undergrad that uh, uh, developing scientific instrumentation and the tools are critically important for enabling the performing performance of better scientific studies. Uh, so I decided to uh, become an instrumentation maker and to learn how to make instruments to study and uh, to take measurements of different things. Um, so when the opportunity came to uh, join Professor uh, Christian Dagan to develop a new technique called uh, uh, MRFM, Magnetic Resonance Force Microscopy, which is a, a blend between MRI imaging and uh, atomic force microscope, uh, this technique would have the promise to deliver three-dimensional dimen resolution uh, images of uh, minute particles of materials like viral particles, uh, like semiconductor uh, uh, devices and all the whole range of uh, small objects that are important for the functioning of modern technology and the medicine. So uh, when that opportunity came up, I, uh, it was quite obvious to me that was the right direction to go into. So mm -hmm. I spent about uh, you know, 10 years of my career uh, in that field. Yeah. And, and now obviously you're doing something quite different um but obviously a lot of that can be can be that, that experience can be brought into the field but how do you how do you compare what you were doing then to what you're doing now uh the same training uh, still comes in handy um even though we are operating under a severe constraint in a lot of things but i don't think it's a bad thing uh as an engineer you're supposed to be uh solving problems we're using whatever uh, material and resources are at your disposal. Um, so there are several examples I can mention. One example uh, are custom environmental sensors that we have uh, developed ourselves using very affordable temperature and the humidity uh, loggers. So these loggers individually, they, they can be sourced at roughly $20 a piece. 
And uh, if you want to have a comparable uh, systems, uh, that's a commercialized solution, they would cost you roughly 10 times that much, roughly $200 per sensor. Um, obviously, there is some disadvantage and advantage for each, each type. The, uh, uh, the commercial system enables you to integrate the whole measurement network more easily. So data taking is more automated. Um, but uh, a centralized system like that is also more prone to failure. If the central data logger gets inundated, as we have encountered in our system in New Hampshire, then the whole uh, all the data are lost for that period. Hmm. So in our more uh, uh, low-cost, uh, uh, more individualized sensor setup, we have to download data from individual sensors more often. But in case of uh, um, disturbances like fires or theft, not the whole system uh, is uh, impacted. We have partial data loss. So there's some advantages and disadvantages uh, for each. But um, my training um, during nanotechnology and material science and building uh, physical principles of sensing um, enables us to you know, have the tools and ideas to be cheap commercial products, mm. uh, functions and measurements. Yeah, we certainly need that. <laughs> we certainly know how to work on a budget at Mayor as well. So, um, listen, I just, so I want to I want to kind of change tack a little bit and talk about environmentalism. Um, and people like Derek Jensen and Lyra Keith would say that environmentalism, you know, has been captured by, you know, industrial lobbyists and you're more likely to see environmentalists lobbying for wind farms and, and solar farms than, than saving wild nature these days. But how do you see environmentalism and, and do you see yourself as an environmentalist? Well, I'm starting to see myself as an environmentalist. <laughs> and I, actually, that development is, uh, is rather recent. I, w I would uh, say it's probably after I really arrived in, uh, in Western Africa and witnessing uh, a very visible you know, receding of the forest line that uh, it's a very you know, emotional feel. When you visit a place that was lush forest just a few months ago and then you visit second time, it's covered by uh, charcoal pits and all the, t the trees are gone. It's, it's, a, it's quite an emotional, shocking uh, event. Uh, so I wouldn't say that I, I started this line of work as an environmentalist. I think I'm uh, mostly a, a scientist and engineer. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, but I it's very important, you know, environmentalism in nations because of our ecological uh, and evolutionary ties to the to nature. It's what gives us life, what sustains us, and what has uh, enabled our uh, and guided our evolution as as a species. So, I think it's within each and every one of us. And the fact that not more of us are environmentalists is probably because of how we are raised as animals in captivity. I think fair access to, to nature in a real sense. <laughs> yes, I agree. People living in urban settings probably don't realize what's going on as much. Um, obviously, our, a lot of our focus is on trying to mitigate the worst effects of climate change on the natural world. But whilst doing that, we're also you know, building adaptation for people in desperate need of relief from thermal intolerance. Do you consider yourself a humanitarian also? I, I think I would consider myself a humanitarian before I consider myself an environmentalist, but though I, I'm moving in, mm. I've been moving in both both directions. Uh, I think what really uh, you know got me uh, you know excited about this line of work, or really uh, felt 
motivated or compelled to do this line of work uh, was uh, starting like I think at the the late two thousands. I think there's a movie or a documentary called uh, 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 I forgot the name. Uh, maybe it will come back to me. But but the gist of it is, is that uh, humanity has largely disappeared, and we have a repository uh, of, of of knowledge in some you know, based in Antarctica or something like that. Um, and as a, a scientist who started uh, research quite early, uh, you know, at the end of high school and basically devoting all my uh, free time to uh, doing meticulous uh, scientific work, I understand how much sacrifice there is and how much difficulty there is in getting any single piece of data that's in the scientific and engineering literature. So if you look at all that work it's it feels just emotionally very sad mm. uh that we would be losing all this effort not only the science but uh, also the music the art you know uh, mm. all the culture all the colon culinary traditions all the uh, um, all the different um, musical traditions of the world it's just uh, extremely sad to lose all that because somebody has have been there and many people have been there to to really spend uh, their valuable time to develop that, to, to put their passion into work. So it's just really sad that we're losing uh, not only, you know, the current generation, but human as a species, especially in that we are a continuation of uh, our history, right? So what we're losing is not only the, the present uh, living people, but also all the legacy of the, all the people before us. So I think that's initially what motivated me or really sad me so much and depressed me so much to to uh, you know take the leap of faith and change yeah. my career path. Yeah, it's it's very difficult for people to even comprehend that. Um, in so we know academic circles can be very specialized, and and um, people have in depth knowledge in specific areas rather than maybe seeing the broader picture. And you were probably one of those people as well. Um, what would you say to critics that, that say you're not really a climate scientist? Uh, well, it depends on where they're coming from. I accept that I'm not a climate typical climate scientist who are experts, computer scientists, uh, first and foremost. They're generally trained uh, to code uh, very well and to uh, uh, run computer processes and uh, automate uh, data analyses. Uh, but I think... Um, what we're dealing with, the task at hand is not to really to make the best representations of the Earth system itself, but rather to, the task now is to uh, find the right reactions to unfolding catastrophe and uh, uh, catastrophic events. And there's no better simulation uh, than, than the Earth itself, regardless of how much progress we can make you know, in the coming years to, to perfect our climate models. Uh, the Earth system will always be more exact than uh, those predictions. And climate, archaeo, uh, you know, paleoclimate data is there. And we do have a pretty good idea of how the Earth system responds, both in magnitude and in speed, to a certain extent, to the perturbations that we are subjecting it to. So from a, someone who is primarily an experimentalist, I don't really see the study of climate science in making these projections as really necessary to tell us what's ahead. Uh, in fact, I think they are a distraction. 
because all the major uh, parameters we need to understand the future of the ecosystem can be derived from empirical science that include uh, paleoclimate studies uh, and also uh, uh, studies of uh, forestry and also oceanography and uh, coastal ecosystems and uh, laboratory and mesocosm experiments on different ecosystems. And those have been yeah. uh, completed already uh, to an extent that enables us to foresee we cannot allow average Earth temperature to go beyond, you know, one degree Celsius, roughly, because in no system that's been studied in the laboratory has there been observed positive impact if you go above uh, average uh, niche temperature by roughly three degrees Celsius, with the few exception of polar species where uh, the rate limiting uh, step are is basically the, the freezing operating too too close to freezing, but for most of uh, the earth and the different latitudes uh, it's quite robust result that we cannot allow marine systems to go beyond two or three degrees celsius terrestrial systems sometimes can exhibit exhibit a bit of tolerance depending on whether you're an animal or a plant if you're an animal you can perform what's called thermal refugia by either going to higher latitudes or climbing up the mountain uh, actually trees do that <laughs> trees do not have uh, uh, the speed to move north or south, depending on which hemisphere you are, but they, uh, relatively speaking, they are able to climb up mountain peaks, but uh, all mountain peaks have a, have a summit, and there's also other constraints, including uh, pressure, oxygen levels, et cetera, and precipitation mm -hmm. levels. So there's an extent, there, there's limits to adaptation to thermal refugia. Um, so all that is to say that is that uh, empirical studies uh, in the field are sufficient to uh, make us worried about, about the future. Uh, and uh, you couple that to empirically observed rate of warming in the past 30, 20 years, and uh, we know we will be surpassing the 1.5 degrees pretty much any time, you know, within uh, the, uh, the next uh, few years, and the two degrees possibly before or by 2040. Yeah, I agree. That, that, that science seems quite settled at this point. Just setting aside the crisis for, for a minute, do you, do you actually enjoy the, the current field work or, or do you miss that, the laboratory work you know, back in the comforts of, of Harvard? Well, how should I put it? Um, we are doing laboratory work on um, using controllable uh, equipment, systems, instruments uh, under ultra-high vacuum conditions. It's a slightly more higher chance of uh, getting to a state where your data is reproducible. So the cycle time from experimental conception, setup to data acquisition is slightly faster. When one is doing the type of field experiments that we're uh, currently trying to do within real communities where people have to conduct their uh, daily lives, it's a bit more complicated. There are factors other than how much care you take and the uh, factors other than the quality of instrumentation that you build or source or assemble. Uh, so there is a potential for uh, you know, disasters. Maybe there's uh, a rainstorm or a snowstorm that inundates your experimental field. Maybe there's a fire that burn up your uh, part of your experimental uh, system. Whether it be a occasional theft of your uh, equipment. So it's a different 
set of challenges and generally um, the turnaround time for experiments are, are longer. So uh, generally we are very, you know, exact data. So one has to be uh, more patient uh, <laughs> and more tolerant to such uh, uh, frustrations yeah. and just understand that there are things that's out of our control in our best efforts. So that's why it's exceptionally important yeah. for the experimenters to not contribute ourselves to the laws. And especially in uh, environmental work, we are working with the seasons, just like in agriculture. So if you missed one heat season, and sorry for you, you have to wait until next heat season, wait for two months for a turbo pump to, to ship, then you can continue with your UHV high vacuum science experiment. So it's a there's also the, the annual cycle to consider. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's just get down to a few basics of, this, of science, really, because um, that's what this podcast is, is more or less about. Um, so the word climate is used so much these days, but, but a lot of people probably don't realize exactly what climate is. So can you explain what, what is climate? What does it mean? To, before talking about climate, maybe we can talk about uh, just what weather is. It's, it's more or less, I would say, an instantaneous measurement of various outdoor environmental conditions. For example, you can measure uh, outdoor wind speed, wind direction, uh, precipitation rate, how much sunlight you're getting at this moment, and what's the cloud coverage looking like when you look up in, in the sky, uh, and the, you know, the temperature, humidity, the usual stuff. So when we talk about the weather, it's generally uh, more or less instantaneous measurement of these parameters over not typically longer than a few minutes to hours, right? Even over the course of a day, we say the weather can change. So that implies that when we're talking about weather, it's for measurements of such parameter conditions over relatively short periods of time. Okay, now if you um, take a time series of, uh, or, you know, a matrix time series of all the ensemble of such measurements and you um, do some statistics on them, say you have a, a such data over a year, then for every parameter, you can, um, first of all, plot a histogram of the parameters. You can choose to break up the year into uh, monthly segments and plot histograms for these different months. You can choose uh, to choose longer time scales, for example, over 10 years and you take every uh, January 20th of those 20 years and you do a statistic on those. So when you start to do those uh, um, statistics over a longer time period, then you're starting to move into the realm of understanding the, the climate of a, say, in particular location. Obviously, you can also, you know, average or take statistics over different spatial locations, not only over the time coordinate. So I would define uh, climate as the statistics of these outdoor environmental conditions, uh, both over time and over space. And um, exactly like what period of time you analyze and what spatial extent you analyze uh, depends on the application and the particular scientific question you're trying to address. Um, if I had a pound for every time, I a Twitter troll told me it's just the weather and nothing to do with the climate. But uh, yeah, I just wanted you to develop that and just explain, you know, how global warming is different from climate change. Climate, just like weather, you know, can, can also change. Uh, climate is nothing but, uh, you know, uh, the means and standard deviation and the 
uh, other statistical measures of uh, the different environmental conditions. And they are able to evolve over time as a function of uh, uh, in the tilt of the earth and the irradiance changes of the sun and other factors and natural processes feedback on planet earth. And uh, if you study the climate record, the paleo climate record, it's obvious that uh, the earth system undergoes quite dramatic climatic changes uh, on its own. Uh, well, in a sense that uh, without significant contribution from human activities. Uh, but the difference between natural climate change and uh, global warming in recent uh, decades to centuries is the rate, the speed at which um, these changes in the mean, in the standard deviation of the various parameters are taking place. You know, it's not only the magnitude of the change, but uh, over what time frame the same magnitude change takes place. That really matters. If we look at the changing, the change of the climate over the past a couple of million years, and uh, do a statistics on the rate of change, we can uh, contrast that with the rate of change in the, the past 200 years. And those are by typically orders of magnitude for most parameters we care to look at, including uh, average global temperatures and even local temperature trends, um, uh, and also, uh, of course, CO2 levels, which is uh, the dominant driver for the ongoing global warming. Uh, so. I hope that's clear. Uh, correct me if, uh, yeah. if I, you, you think no. I need a, to elaborate. No, it's fine. It's fine. It, it just leads me into my next question as well. It's got, I, I often hear arguments from you know climate deniers that the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere are so insignificant that it can't possibly be a reason for climate change. So, so what's the main evidence that indicates that climate change isn't a natural and that CO2 is the driving force? Uh, well, like one evidence that I uh, I sort of mentioned is the the speed at which uh, the temperature has been uh, has been rising, and it's rising and it's lagging behind um, the CO two concentration changes. So, if the system Earth system were given sufficient time, uh, the temperature parameter and the CO two parameter would attract each other. Uh, like more exactly. So right now, given the current level of CO2, the temperature response is actually uh, lagging behind uh, what we observed in Earth's history. So that's uh, one indication that uh, in this pair of CO2, if there are somehow directly more likely to be the primary driver uh, uh, of temperature and uh, this to change. Uh, or not us, but you know, all the scientists studying these area, uh, the, the, these topics. Before we know that the temperature is lagging behind CO two, it could also be that temperature is driving uh, CO two changes. So I think the major you know, internet is anthropogenic and actually really uh, one the the orders of magnitude difference in the rate of change for these parameters compared to natural variation and natural climate change, and the second uh, that we can fairly well quantify how much emissions are due to you know, anthropogenic burning of fossil fuels and also other land use disturbances. And these respond to, at least within a uh, factor of two, what we observe in the atmosphere, accumulation in the atmosphere and also acidification of the ocean. So uh, we can you know, reconcile what we do with what we observe. So. We understand mm -hmm. where the atmospheric pool and ocean acidification pool are coming from. It's you know 
mostly uh, coming from uh, our consumption of fossil fuels and of other uh, ecosystem uh, biomasses. Yeah, and I suppose the warming also has an impact on, on the permafrost and, and methane and, and feedbacks like that as well. So, um, yeah, some people point to, you know, they'll say this is the coldest winter we've ever had in years. Um, and you do see um, what's happening in the U.S. and what happened in Texas a couple of years ago where, you know, the polar vortex um, came right down. So, so why is this the case for some people and, and what's happening there whilst the planet is actually warming? Uh the fact, the fact that they're using a personal observation at, during a very limited period of time uh, to say something about whole distribution is, uh, is uh, logically flawed because climate is you know, the distribution of such parameters over multi-year, decadal timescales. Um, and your personal observation taken over just a few days is but a few random samplings from... Uh, uh, such a large distribution. And that's uh, point number one. And point number two is that we're looking at uh, global averages and the regional averages. And it, there could very well be locations on Earth where the average temperature and average uh, you know, precipitation patterns will move in opposition to the global mean, to how the global mean moves. It's entirely possible. Uh, but that's uh, not what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, global warming. It's, we're talking about the average uh, two-meter surface uh, air, uh, air temperature increasing and or also sea surface temperature changing and the total amount of stored energy in our system. And how that uh, excess thermal energy redistributes or distributes itself within the planetary system can most certainly show spatial heterogeneity thus leading to these uh, locally variable uh, observations. That's why these local arguments uh, over one season, two season, are uh, not really relevant. But is, is the warming uh, affecting the jet stream and the polar vortex? I mean, it's certainly based on observations in recent years that there's a, a very remarkable destabilization of these uh, atmospheric circulation events. <laughs> and... Uh, there's a phenomenon called a polar amplification, uh, which basically describes the fact that if you measured two meter air temperature over a different location on Earth, you know, from the equator gradually north up to the pole, you measure very different rates of warming. So uh, right now, globally average, we have roughly 1.5 degrees of warming. But at the pole in certain locations, we have up to, you know, six, seven degrees of warming already. Whereas in uh, near equator, it's maybe like 0.5 degrees. So the, uh, the rates of air temperature warming um, is more pronounced as you go up in, in latitude. And uh, that's a manifestation also of the fact that within the Earth system itself, thermal energy flows from the equator up to the pole. So all that excess energy that's gathered over the equator, over mid-latitudes, has to somehow, or part of it, have to uh, flow and make its way up to uh, the North Pole in order to be dissipated by IR radiation away from the pole eventually. Uh, and uh, nature does it by different mechanisms, uh, including uh, by, uh, 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 by hurricanes, you know, uh, and also in atmospheric transport, but also by ocean currents. And... Uh, uh, these processes, when the atmospheric disturbance gets more, uh, 
there's more energy uh, instability and tendency for air to mix from lower latitude to up north, then you will certainly uh, change the normal uh, circulation patterns. And uh, whenever there is a, a warm air, air moving north, there has to be compensating air moving south because you cannot really create a vacuum anywhere very easily. So if there is like a very strong tendency for warm air from say somewhere in uh, North Atlantic to move uh, through the Bering Strait into, into the pole, then there has to be accompanying with that northward motion of air, a southward motion of cold air down, say, into the northeast of the United States. And that's uh, what you know, could be explaining the observation of more severe winter storms in certain locations in these uh, northern uh, latitudes as close to the pole. Right? It's also an indication that somewhere to your east, <laughs> there are strong currents of warm air rushing into the pole. Hence, you are getting this uh, uh, northerly wind down south. Yeah, and it appears to be causing more storms as well. I mean, I looked at some data today for the UK, and since 2010, there's been a 300% increase in, in storms over the UK in just 14 years. So, that, I mean, that's incredible figures. But, um, yeah, so this, you, you have first-hand experience now living in, in a very hot climate, and, and obviously it's getting warmer. So how is it actually affecting the people on the ground? What's the most challenging thing about working and living in Sierra Leone? So, so typically we're operating uh, well above 30 degrees Celsius during the day. And that's for somebody in the States or the UK. It's 90 degree Fahrenheit. And uh, humidity levels are anywhere, you know, 770 to 90% uh, percent humidity. So you can imagine how hot that is. And uh, when you're operating in such conditions, especially when there's, uh, in addition to that, intense sunlight, one gets tired uh, extremely easily. Um, so it takes so much extra work, uh, effort just to do uh, very simple things. Uh, and one feels exhausted uh, all most of the time. And it's, it's a real drag to, to perform uh, daily activities and functions. It's not easy. No. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, people doing animal studies have been trying to uh, also understand the, uh, the impact of such high temperature conditions on and the longevity and there's a, a recent paper not too long ago like last year on using mice as model and uh, they were rearing mice at uh, two temperatures one 20 degrees celsius the other 32 degrees celsius uh actually the temperature that we experience in free time. and what they uh, they observed was a 40 percent reduction in longevity of the mice reared at um, and that has to do with uh, cellular repair mechanisms and the many other several pathways that seems to be conserved all the time to mice to, to humans. So there's uh, uh, also uh, interesting to trying to understand how that really impact human longevity. Okay, well, I just I'll, I'll just end with one last question for you then because um, I want to I want to talk about mental health really, and um, you know because it's a very tough subject for anybody to to learn about um, what's going on with the climate predicament. And uh, there seems to be increased anxiety in the younger generation as well, um, who are, are waking up to it. So with, with all that you know and all that you understand, and there's not many people that would understand as much of it as, as you do. I mean, how do you keep yourself, you know, mentally sane and mentally stable? Uh, well, it goes to uh, back to um, 
like my becoming uh, what you call a, a humanitarian, I think after struggling with and coming to terms with the fact that uh, uh, all civilizations end and all mammalian species eventually go extinct, uh, it becomes clear that it's um, futile to try to preserve, let's say, uh, human civilization or even Homo sapiens as a species, uh, you know, billions of years into the future, that's simply not natural, right? All um, mammalian species have an expiration date of on the order of millions of years, that's 10 to the, the six. And uh, within the time span, natural time span of our species, just like the natural span of a person, uh, we can uh, build a different type of civilizations and uh, groups of human beings. We have, you know, uh, experimented in our history with um, um, uh, with tribal organization, hunter-gatherers. We have dabbled in agriculture, and now we are, uh, you know, a uh, fossil fuel-enabled uh, techno species that's uh, really decoupled uh, at the individual level from uh, the natural environments. And uh, most of these large-scale organized societies uh, have a limited time span of uh, a few hundred years. If you do a statistic on them, they normally follow a log normal distribution with a uh, mean lifespan of roughly 230, 250 years. And that's roughly uh, the age of our fossil fuel uh, uh, civilization. So in, in a sense, uh, this set of living arrangements, in, in the words of uh, Dr. Guy McPherson, is coming to its uh, roughly its a natural uh, expiry date. Uh, so when one realizes that um, it's just part of the natural process, but of course in each incarnation of the civilization, it's maybe a slightly different mechanism, then one has to uh, seek alternative meaning than the mere preservation of life, uh, either at individual level, group level, or civilizational level. And uh, for me, each person has to you know, find their own answer. For me, uh, it's about uh, promoting well-being, uh, giving uh, people, sentient beings, uh, the, the possibility to self-actualize, to, to experience the beauties of the world. I, I think for me, that is uh, uh, the mission of a, a well-functioning uh, civilization. And uh, in spite of its uh, short duration, this fossil fuel civilization, what it has managed uh, above and beyond any previous civilization uh, includes elevating the average life expectancy and the total number of humans to unprecedented level. So if we use different metrics for success, we are actually on pretty, uh, you know, solid uh, footing with respect to really uh, optimizing uh, a better existence for all the humans. Obviously, if all the uh, social divides, all the uh, inequities are continuing to exist, what's coming down the line would not be pretty and would definitely hurt uh, the overall well-being and uh, sense, uh, lived experience of all the, the humans. But we have all the opportunity still to make that change. So, so for me and for many people working uh, at Mir, I think we're uh, hope, hoping to change that from the grassroots uh, to really decouple uh, as much as we can human well-being and happiness um, and the root in fundamental biophysics uh, of access to clean water, uh, healthy shelter, and uh, 
nutritious food, and try to decouple that from the、uh, financial system that has caused this、uh, decoupling between individuals and the natural world.、Uh, and as civilization weakens, as our ability to organize large-scale transatlantic、uh, you know, shipping and flights become more difficult, I think. These localized um, uh, efforts to really reconnect people to the biophysical flows、uh, would become more and more important. So、uh, it's important that、uh, in the remaining time that we have as a global species, that we fully develop uh, uh, the set of expertise to really、uh, reconnect with nature, with the land, and use whatever we have learned—smart、uh, tricks, let's say—to.、Uh, Cope with、uh, more difficult conditions that we have created、uh, for ourselves in the、uh, the past two hundred, three hundred years.、Uh, so, so these are things that help me pers- on a personal level to cope with uh, uh, the very sad realities for、uh, somebody yet to be primed with uh, uh, what's coming down the line. Yeah, no, it's、uh, and it's keeping busy as well,、um, uh, and what we're doing as well is fantastic. And change is coming. Whether we like it or not, and, and we we need to prepare. Okay, so we're out of time. I want to thank Dr. Tao for his time and his excellent answers for this first podcast. We'll be back hopefully next month again,、um, and we'll dive much deeper into the science and into the project and into the solutions, as people want to hear、uh, me as a solution and what we're doing.、Um, thanks to everyone who tuned into the live stream and those listening on the recording. I hope you find the conversation useful and enlightening.、Um, just remember, you can follow our developments as always on the website mir.org or follow our X Twitter feed at mirsrm m e e r s r m.、Um, once again, Mir is a non-profit, and we really do appreciate any donations you can make towards our ongoing research and humanitarian efforts.、Um, to do so, just go to mir.org forward slash donate. And if you go to our website, the front page, you can see our、um, documentary、uh, of exactly what we're doing on the ground there. So, thanks again and slang goodbye.